Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you missed any of my talk radio breakfast show, don't worry. We've put some of the punchiest bits of this morning's show into a bite-sized podcast, the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. Enjoy. Online, on DAB, and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. Let's get straight to the big issue happening uh, today. Of course, we've got the uh, tier announcement from Matt Hancock, the Health Secretary, 11.30 in the House of Commons. He's going to tell us uh, which parts of the country is going to go into which tiers. Tier 1, some semblance of normality, but tiers 2, tiers 3, lots of infringements on our our personal liberties. Tier 3, massive shutdown of hospitality. Uh, No pubs, restaurants or others allowed to open for anything other than takeaway. A huge hit to local economies. But where will each part of the country be? Well, let's... Let's talk to Andy Preston now. He's the independent mayor of Middlesbrough and joins us right now. Good morning to you, Andy. Hello, Julia. Good morning. No, good morning. Well, we know an awful lot of mayors of many uh, towns and regions across the country have been lobbying the government, desperate to make sure uh, that their local area uh, doesn't end up in the top tier. I know there's some hope that London could be tier two, Liverpool possibly uh, heading towards tier two, Greater Manchester tier three. What are your best hopes and worst fears for Middlesbrough? Yeah. Best hopes and worst fears. Best hopes realistically is tier two. And you know what, Julia? I think that would be great news. There's a, there's a hint of normality, isn't there, in tier two. You can go to a well-run restaurant or a well-run bar. I think we deserve that. If they're well-run, they're not dangerous. Um, but what I fear, what I fear is tier three. And it would be unfair because the people of Middlesbrough and the businesses, the sacrifices they've made have been huge. Our number has come down from about 507, currently to the mid-200s. It's heading... And that, that's, the that's right. infections per 100,000. Exactly right. That's exactly right. It's come down. It's, it's, it's come down. It's half, basically, which is fantastic. There's more work to do. And I do not see why we can't have a bit of normality and have well-run restaurants that are policed and monitored, have them open for people to use. And this is the thing. We've never actually been presented with the evidence that, uh, as you say, well-run bars, restaurants and pubs. I've been to numbers of, of pubs and restaurants uh, since we were allowed to. Fourth of July, I was straight there at lunchtime um, when they reopened. Um, but always social distancing, very responsible, staff wearing masks, people people now wearing a mask when you pop to the loo, not allowed to go to the bar, uh, ordering at the table. I have not been in any establishment that has not had social distancing. And there's lots of people arguing that actually... Um, People mixing in in pubs and restaurants are darn sight safer than people being in their own homes where they don't have that social distancing, uh, where they don't have perhaps all the sanitizer or indeed the ventilation. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there is there is a slight anomaly, isn't there? I understand why it's happening that you can mix with people over Christmas uh, at home, um, but you can't mix with them in a bar. 
Um, of course, we've all seen shocking images, haven't we? You know, up and down the country, huge crowds coming out of pubs and singing and dancing arm in arm. Doubtless that spread the virus. Doubtless it did really, really um, um, uh, fast. But a well-run place that's monitored where the councils and the bars have got the, the powers to police, I don't think that's a real risk. So I'm, I'm, I, I fear tier three. If it happens, we'll make the best of it. But I think we deserve tier two. I think we've made real sacrifices. We need to try and find a way of getting a hint, a hint of normality. I mean, this is the thing. This is not about people's uh, having the opportunity to go and buy a pint and sit in a pub, is it? This is about the lives and livelihoods, the businesses uh, of, uh, of all the people who own those uh, hospitality uh, venues, which have been running even since they opened again in uh, 4th of July. They've been running at a loss. You can't make a profit at the level of capacity. People are allowed to keep those places safe. They were holding out for November and December, absolutely crucial months of the year uh, for their takings. Not going to be seeing any Christmas parties, not allowed to have people, you know, families meeting up or say the big, the big uh, Christmas lunch on Christmas Day or Boxing Day and the like. Uh, all of that has been taken away from them. We are going to see an awful lot of those businesses that were closed for lockdown never reopen. Yeah, 100%. And you're dead right. It, it, it is. It's about jobs, isn't it? It's about livelihoods. It's about business. It's about tax revenues for the government too. We need that money coming in the Exchequer, HMRC, to fund police, hospitals and schools. And it's also, Julia, it's about mental health. There are people who rely on the ability to get out, have a bit of safe and moderate socialising. And to deny that is pushing people into depression. Obviously, that costs the NHS a huge amount of money and has monstrous tolls down the line on society. So I'm, I'm a big favour in having safe places with good procedures open, but we police it. And if there's a hint of bad practice, we close them down yep. and find them. Yeah, absolutely. That's what all of us have been calling for over, over the weeks and months. Have you found uh, government to be receptive when you've been sort of putting the arguments for your uh, your town to have uh, to have uh, tier two, not tier three? We know, you know, Sadiq Khan for London has been campaigning, Andy Burnham for Greater Manchester, uh, Rotherham, see Rotherham for, for, for Liverpool. Uh, lots of people, you know, basically putting the campaign publicly and privately. Have they been receptive? Are you sure that they are looking at the right data? We've seen a lot of government decisions in recent weeks made on very dodgy data. Are you are you convinced they've got the right data to make the right decision truthfully um you know i hate to be a critic of the government right now because i've criticized them all year and they have done some things really well and some things badly they often look at data that's four five six days old and you know what that's a lot four five six days old can tell you a very different story can represent a very different trend to what's really going on so i fear they may look at data that's slightly older we're making huge advances getting our infection rate down in the last 14, 15 days. But yeah, I've had no feedback from government, whether they listen or hear uh, what, what I say, I, I don't know. But I'll keep saying it till, till it's answered. I fear tier three, Julia, but I'm hopeful of tier two. We deserve it, we've made sacrifices and we need, we need the chance to have moderate, safe socialising. Online, on DAB and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, Talk Radio. There is no official opposition to lockdown. There's just an official opposition to to not having enough of a lockdown sooner, harder, longer, deeper, faster, as I always say. Apart from, of course, 70 members uh, of the COVID recovery group, a group of uh, Tory backbench MPs, uh, actually chaired by uh, my next guest, former Chief Whip Mark Harper, who joins us right now. Good morning to you, Mark. Good morning, Julia. Um, I'm, I'm going to say to you right now, on behalf of uh, myself and, uh, and many of my talk radio listeners, I'm thinking probably a majority of them at this point, thank you for providing some opposition, you and your MPs, uh, to what uh, the uh, the government is planning to do, because we're not seeing enough of it uh, from other parties, that's for sure, and indeed, I think, within government. Um, let's talk about, first of all, what happened yesterday, the spending review. I mean, we've gone Ooh. through the numbers there. They're shocking, they're horrible. I don't know why they are shocking to a lot of people, uh, because everyone could have predicted this. You shut down the economy me what a surprise it costs jobs it costs businesses it costs livelihoods and ultimately as we now know world health organization reports uh, numerous other reports uh, office for national statistics everyone it also costs lives in the long run as well doesn't it uh, yes it, it can do one, one of the things that we've been calling through the group that i chair is for the government to be very transparent about each of the measures that it's proposing what impact each of those measures has in reducing the spread of the virus, but also what impact they have on non-COVID health harms. And I know you set many of those out on your programme in the past, and also on the economy, because if we have a smaller economy in the future, that's going to impact on resources we have to spend on the health service, to spend on social care, to spend on looking after people and a smaller economy, less money tends to lead to worse health outcomes. And I think what you have to do is get the balance right. It's very difficult. I accept, you know, you're trying to save the overall number of lives possible, greatest number of lives possible. But I want to know for each measure, are you saving more lives than you're costing? That's really what we've asked the government to provide before we're asked to vote on it next week. Well, indeed, uh, again and again and again, MPs uh, from your group have been asking uh, for these, uh, uh, this information, this cost-benefit analysis, this impact assessment. We know there wasn't a proper impact assessment carried out before the the, lock, the second lockdown was instituted because a cabinet minister confirmed that to me on air, Rob, Robert uh, Robert Jenry. Yeah. But, I mean, you, you were actually asking a question to the Prime Minister the other day when his uh, line went down from number 10, uh, where you were actually asking, could we see 
see the actual numbers. We want to see you know, what the cost benefit of each individual measure that isn't contained in these different tiers would have on saving lives from COVID and also on what the costs are in terms of health and wealth would be. Um, we, we never really found out what the answer was. Has the Prime Minister told you since? No, no, we've asked the question and we've repeatedly asked the question. Um, the government has said they're going to publish information um, when they publish the regulations that we're going to be asked to vote on next week. And obviously we'll have to see whether it's adequate. You referred to the, the lockdown period. The reason why I voted against the government then, which was only the second time I've done that in my entire 15 years in Parliament, was because they didn't substantiate the claims that were made, for example, about hospital capacity across the country. They made claims and then they didn't supply the information. And I simply wasn't persuaded. I'm, I'm open to persuasion, mm. but I think the government, the onus is on the government, if it's proposing what are draconian measures, to bring forward the evidence, what's been underpinning their decision, and set that out. And I, I think that's quite a reasonable thing to ask. Yeah. And this is the crucial thing. I'm often told by people on social media, like, oh, well, what's your evidence that, that, that lockdowns don't work? I think, well, no, I, I don't have to provide that evidence. If you're shutting down the economy, you have to provide the evidence. It's the other way around. I mean, actually, the evidence is very clear. Look, the reality is, if the government hasn't done a detailed cost-benefit analysis of how each individual measure, whether it's the 10pm or 11pm curfew or closing pubs that, that don't serve substantial meals or, or opening non-essential shops, whatever the measure is, if they have not done a detailed cost-benefit analysis of the effects of this, frankly, um, they should all be taken out and shot because this is basic job of government. Ian Dunga-Smith served as Work and Pension Secretary in the Tory government for many years. He pointed out this was routinely done for any small policy. The idea you would do it for a major policy that costs billions of pounds and, and you, you just let that go ahead without any policy um, and assessment would be insane. If they have done it, why are they not publishing it? Because surely if the evidence is really clear that we will save many, many more lives uh, and that the cost is worth it, we would all sign up to it, would we not? But clearly they're not publishing it if it does exist because it doesn't actually tell us what they want it to say. Well, I mean, you, you might think that and, and I couldn't possibly comment. Uh, but I, I You are a loyal be, Tory MP. <laughs> but that may be, I mean, that may be the case. And in fact, one thing that we have had published, Julia, just yesterday in the OBR um, forecast, the Chancellor adopted the central forecast. And it's interesting to look at the assumptions behind that. That forecast assumes... Test and trace continues to not work particularly well. It assumes that the whole country will be in very severe restrictions all the way through until April. And it also suggests that the vaccines will not be widely available until the summer. Uh, and those are not things that ministers are saying as they're trying to persuade us to vote for the restrictions. So all I'm asking for, which I think is a very reasonable ask, is some straight answers to some straight questions. And as you've said, if the government's got a good case and can substantiate all of these things, um, then I would support it. Um, but I'm waiting to see that information, as are a number of colleagues, and then we'll make our decision ahead of the vote next week. I mean, we did see last time around the vote against the lockdown, it was 34 Tory MPs and another four MPs who mm -hmm. voted against it, and then a number of MPs, I think it was 12, including Theresa May, the former Prime Minister, who, who decided to abstain. You are expecting, obviously, a lot more uh, MPs on your side. You've got 70 in your group, uh, and we know a lot of those people joined after being, I think, as horrified as a lot of us were by the Prime Minister announcing on that hasty press conference on that Saturday mm -hmm. night before we went into lockdown. This this possibility, this prediction of 4,000 deaths a day. 
an absolutely nonsense forecast already had been overtaken by two uh, subsequent forecasts far, far lower, debunked within hours as soon as any other experts had a look at that. Um, and the fact that we were given that sort of information, false false information, there's no way in the world that Chris Whitty and Patrick Vance didn't know that, that information was a complete load of nonsense. And yet we were told that that has really undermined trust in the government, hasn't it? Well, I think it has. I think I think colleagues are not prepared just to take things at face value, you know, and on behalf of our constituents, we've got to tell people that we're confident that the decisions that are being taken are correct. And if I'm looking, you know, a business owner in the face whose business is going to no longer be viable or, or someone who's lost their job, I want to be able to tell them it's not going to necessarily make them feel any better. But I want to be able to tell them that if that was as a consequence of a decision I took, that I had all the information in front of me, I weighed it up, and that was the decision I came to. Um, and that's all I'm asking for. Give us the information and let us make those sensible decisions. And if the decisions are clear and well supported by the evidence, then I don't think the government's got anything to fear by publishing it. Indeed. And and just the next battle ahead is, of course, which uh, tier large parts of the country uh, fall into. Tier one, I mean, you know, again, I think we're supposed to be grateful for being in tier one. Very few parts of the country likely uh, to be there. That's where the rule of six, meeting indoors or outdoors, but still got the 11pm curfew on pubs and restaurants. And uh, uh, But, you know, non-essential shops as will every tier allow and hairdressing and things yep. to be open tier two high alert most of the country we think will be in that uh, no household mixing indoors rule of six outdoors pubs and restaurants shut at 11 p.m um uh, those that are allowed to open who serve meals tier three is the big fear isn't it and it's thought that possibly greater manchester could be in tier three um uh, and, and this is where no household mixing indoors or outdoors in in venues at all because pubs and restaurants closed except for delivery and takeaway that is going to be the death knell for huge numbers of hospitality uh, uh, pubs and, and restaurants, hotels and otherwise, if that goes ahead. The big battle has been keeping uh, many of the cities out of that. I know London, Liverpool, hopeful of being in tier two. But uh, what do you think is going to happen? Well, I think the government's been very clear that it's signalled that most of the country will be in tiers two and three. That's the um, assumption that it's assumed in the forecast that we saw yesterday. But I think, Julia, one of the interesting things, even in tier two, Although pubs and restaurants can open and serve alcohol if they're serving a substantial meal, the problem they've got is that you can't mix with any other household indoors. Yeah. And I was listening to a report this morning from the industry that suggests that that means in a tier two area, 75% of hospitality venues simply won't be profitable. And you know that is going to potentially lead to um, hundreds of thousands of job losses. Yeah. Uh, which is going to have consequences from years to come. Now, what I want to know is if that's the economic cost, I need to know that the the benefit to, to having that restriction on the virus is, is substantial enough to justify that cost. And that's really the information that we're asking for yeah. from the government. Online, on DAB and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. Let's talk about the man who's on the front page of virtually every newspaper today. Really uh, very sad news yesterday. The death of Diego Maradona, just the age of 60. Well, let's talk to Jimmy Burns, OBE. Now he's a journalist and author of Hand of God, a biography of Diego Maradona. Good morning to you, Jimmy. Good morning, Julia. It really is the end of an era, although I have to say, I mean, the reports of Diego Maradona's demise have come thick and fast over years. Many people surprised he even made it to 50, let alone 60, after his life of, of, of drugs and uh, and, and others, uh, other deeds over the years. Um, I mean, we, we remember him so much here in the UK, even people who don't have much interest in football whatsoever, for the hand of God. But in Argentina and much of South America, he is treated 
as a god, isn't he? Uh, yes. Um, I mean, undoubtedly, there's a sort of two sides of Diego, which you've already alluded to. Um, one sort of familiar to English fans and, and, and outside Argentina, and the other, Diego Maradona, who's the sort of semi-god in his own country. I mean, if, if, as we talk, as you know, there's a three-day a three morning in, in Argentina. People have, have been in the streets all night. Um, he's almost been kind of beatified there. But uh, there's two sides to Diego, as you, as you pointed out. And, and one is the genius on, on the pitch, and the other one is the, the, the one who, who, who pressed the self-destruct button fairly early on in his career, unfortunately. Well, indeed. I mean, let's let's talk about the genius, first of all. Let's remember the good times. Um, I mean, again, we remember the Hand of God uh, goal so much, but actually the goal after that was one of the greatest goals ever scored in a World Cup match. Um, he is, the argument seems to be, was he the best or was he just one of the very best in football? Where do you stand on that? Well, uh, you know, this is the ongoing debate goes on and you get new players coming up on the scene and new geniuses on the scene, the Messi's, the Ronaldo's. Uh, I, I still think that, you know, every time I look at that goal, that second goal against England, you know, it's, I, I always call it poetry in motion. I mean, it's just, you know, one doesn't have to go through it again. You know, lots of your listeners will be more than familiar with it. But it's the kind of clip that, you know, I will sort of keep showing to my children, my children's children, even if they're not great footy fans, you know, it's, it's just a sort of wonderful uh, piece of, of genius from this sort of stocky five foot five uh, guy with an incredible sense of gravity, incredible, you know, the ball literally tied to his feet. Um, beating the entire English team is quite quite extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, really, it really is, isn't it? I mean, we say we know he was a genius, uh, and um, he, I mean, he certainly didn't look like a sporting hero in lots of ways, did he? But he, I mean, he very much sort of put South African, South African, I'm saying South American football uh, on the map, and was a source of great pride. But again, as you talked about his self destruction as well, I mean, the the years of uh, of, of drugs, drug abuse, cocaine. Also, we hold very strong links when he moved uh, to Italy with the mafia. I mean, he, he basically went on a sort of spiral downwards uh, once his playing career ended. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I sort of document this in, in some detail uh, in my biography. I mean, he, he basically, uh, he went to FC Barcelona. It was the first time he basically played for a, for a club outside his own country. Uh, he was very young when he got there. I mean, certainly in his last, towards the, the last of his period in Barcelona was the first time he took cocaine. He went into a nightclub there and, and was offered it. Uh, and uh, then he went to Italy. And of course, you know, the, the, his landing uh, in Italy was literally like, you know, descending from, from the heavens because he, he I, I, you probably remember the sort of pictures of it. He literally arrived in a helicopter uh, amidst the sort of masses of mil- thousands and millions of Napolitanos uh, who literally kind of venerated him because up to that point, you know, Naples was the... Uh, the underdog in Italian football, uh, completely sort of locked down by the big giants of the north. And suddenly this guy comes along and saves them and wins the Italian championship for them for the first time in their history. But as you rightly say, uh, that was also the beginning of the downward spiral because he got involved with the local mafia, the Camorra, 
which is incredibly powerful and actually had a big influence on football. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fascinating when you think about just how much of a sort of bruising he took on the pitch as well. And I wonder how much that's been linked to what, what what's happened to him in terms of the drug taking. We know that, I mean, the amount of you know, drugs and goodness knows what that he was given just to be able to continue playing, the sort of fouls that he had to endure, that the physical beating that this sort of genius on the football pitch had to endure every time he went uh, onto the playing field. Yeah, very good point. And, and of course, you know, uh, certainly some of your older listeners will recall that in his, in his early days of playing, uh, the, the kind of refereeing uh, was, you know, just to put it mildly, sort of slightly turned the blind side to the, uh, to the fouls. And, and he was basically hacked practically in every game. And, and, and the famous headline, I remember a certain tabloid, uh, let's put it, um, it's called The Sun, um, you know, called it the butcher of Bilbao, a Goga chair, uh, a player for Atletico Bilbao when Diego was in, in Barcelona. I literally hacked him and practically broke his leg. Uh, and that was one of several injuries that he had. Yeah, indeed. Well, we know tributes have been played by the likes of Messi and Ronaldo. I mean, he will always be forever, all time, uh, one of the greats. But um, I, I wonder which one of our sporting greats we would have three days of national mourning for. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, but you know, I, I could think of Bobby Charlton, for instance. You know, uh, when he, when he, you know, the sort of, I mean, those sort of Stanley Matthews, the great, great players of English yeah. football, deserve they deserve all, all the sort of um, tributes they can get, really. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, in Argentina, uh, you know, one could argue that Argentina uh, has has been a bit of a failed state over the years, uh, not least over a certain war over the Falklands, and and and. Uh, you know, the one thing they, you know, Argentines continue to be proud of because he's well known around the world. Across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker, Talk Radio. Thanks for listening to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and give me a good review. And don't forget to catch me on the Talk Radio Breakfast Show every weekday from 6.30 until 10.